North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dr. Lowe Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, a.k.a. Dr. Lowe, and I'm a naturopathic doctor practicing here in sunny San Diego, California. As a naturopath, I'm trained as a primary care doctor, for those of you who don't know. Um, In addition to the training of, you know, diagnostic uh, imaging and laboratory work and diagnosis, um, I'm also trained in nutrition and herbal medicine and a lot more. So I have a lot of tools in my toolbox to help with patients and to really create an individualized approach for them. I absolutely love what I do. I'm very, very fulfilled in my work. I had a question asked to me recently if I only see patients here in San Diego, and I actually don't. I see patients um, throughout the U.S. and internationally. So if you're looking for a doctor to help understand your health concerns and get you on a plan, definitely check me out. Um, Instead of giving my email address here on the show, I'll just give you my Facebook page. So facebook.com slash drlonoel, so it's D-R-L-O-N-O-E-L. So check me out, and my contact information is on there. I miss you guys. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, Last week I was feeling a little under the weather, so we skipped a week. Our guest that was scheduled was Dr. John Neustadt. Uh, We were going to be talking about bone health and osteoporosis, which is a very important topic, so we'll definitely have him on the show probably in March or April since we are booked up for several weeks, which is great. Um, The show has been really popular. I have a lot of listens, so I'm really happy about that. Before I introduce our topic and our guest for tonight, uh, I want to let you know who we're going to have on the show for next week. Dr. Lynn Patrick, she is an expert in liver health, and uh, so we'll be talking all about the liver, how does your liver work exactly, how can you keep your liver healthy and maximize its ability to clear toxins in this ever-increasingly toxic world, and if you do have liver disease, how can you effectively address that with natural medicine? So it's going to be a great show. That's one week from tonight. The week after that, I'm so excited to have this guest on the show. I know I say that about every guest, but it's true, and especially this guest, Dr. Lise Alshuler. She is an expert in natural cancer care. So she'll be on the show. She's worked with the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. She's incredibly knowledgeable, very, very well-versed in research. She's extremely smart, so that'll be a great show. That's in two weeks. Tonight's show is going to be something that's very relevant to all of us, and I'm talking about the top causes of death in the U.S., heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, real diseases, real conditions that are killing hundreds of thousands of people in our country every year. And if you haven't dealt with these personally, you know someone who has, so it's very close to home. You know, when it comes to natural medicine, it's really easy to talk about naturopathic medicine for preventing disease, and it's easy to talk about it with minor conditions. You may, you know, maybe minor aches and pains and stomach aches and headaches, but what about chronic diseases that are debilitating to people? What can naturopathic medicine offer for that? So with that said, I'll introduce our guest for tonight. This is a man who, after spending many years in the conventional medical world as a dentist, changed his career so drastically to drop everything and become a naturopathic doctor. I've been a student of his. He carries himself with the utmost integrity in his work. Tonight, I'm honored to have Dr. Dick Tom on the show. Dr. Tom is a licensed naturopathic physician and full-time professor at the National College of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. He instructs several classes at the college, including physical diagnosis, neurology, endocrinology, and x-ray practicum, 
and he supervises clinical rounds at the, at the clinic as well. In addition to teaching students in the clinic, he lectures the students and doctors throughout the U.S. and Canada about business management with his company, The Health of Business, The Business of Health. Dr. Tom has been in private practice since 1989 in downtown Portland. His specialty is in the management of chronic disease, including autoimmune disease, neurological conditions, endocrine disorders, and cancer. His therapies focus on the optimal lifestyle choices for each specific condition, including dietary, sleep, and exercise recommendations, supplementation, and herbal medicine, and also a form, a European form of homeopathy, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Dr. Tom has authored the book Coping with Food Intolerances and has contributed numerous articles to books and magazines and has appeared on TV and radio programs with a variety of health topics. His favorite hobby is ice hockey, which he's, and he's been a devoted Boston Bruin fan since, since 1974. So go ahead and bring Dr. Tom on the line. I'm going to make sure I have the right number here. Let's see. Dr. Tom, are you there? I am. Great. I wasn't sure which number. I had a few 503s on the switchboard, so I was I'm, uh -huh. I picked the right one. So thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you on the show. It's uh, my pleasure, uh, very much so. I probably would like to have your weather up here in Portland, but uh, we'll take what we got. Yeah, I'm sure you would. It's pretty nice. Actually, it's been rainy for the last few days, but today it, it got pretty toasty, so it was nice. <laughs> I'm getting right. spoiled here. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. So, Dr. Tom, I know about you, but for the listeners, why did you decide to become a naturopathic doctor after spending so many years of being a dentist? Well, as many people who get into our profession, uh, it's a result usually of a personal journey. And in my case, it was uh, my wife's journey, who um, at a very young age, when I met her in her 20s, already was having a number of uh, health challenges and health problems and she saw many fine physicians who just couldn't seem to uh, help her very much. And it wasn't until she saw an alternative practitioner uh, and a homeopath that uh, things really started to turn around and become very different. And it was very it was very hard not to uh, take notice of that, uh, the fact that uh, an alternative form of medicine that I was very unfamiliar with um, that would have had such a large impact. So it, it en enhanced my... Uh, my desire to explore that a little bit. And uh, at the time, I was practicing dentistry in, in Canada, and I decided I would sort of start to read more about homeopathy and other forms of healing. And uh, over the course of three years, I probably went through uh, about four or 500 books. And those days, we didn't have the Internet, so it was all about books um, to read. And it became very evident that there was a common theme uh, in whatever, whether it was somebody who was doing Ayurvedic medicine or homeopathic medicine or naturopathic medicine, um, you know, it didn't matter the style. There was a, an overlap in what was being said, and I, I took it to heart and decided that that would be something that we're studying. And uh, after I became so engrossed in it, I decided I could I could help more people as a naturopathic physician than as a dentist because there's of course tens of thousands of dentists. Uh, available, but there was a very small number of naturopathic physicians, and still are. So I felt that I could better serve, uh, you know, my per my own personal purpose because I had seen such a tremendous uh, results with my wife. Mm -hmm. What was this commonality that you were seeing with these different healing arts that you were researching? Well, definitely, the, the most common commonality are the uh, types of things that we need to do on a day-to-day -day basis, and. 
without any doubt, the number one thing is what do you feed yourself? What we eat has so much to do uh, with any uh, chronic disease. And you mentioned uh, to start off the show the the most common reasons that uh, people die in uh, our country, which is the uh, the chronic we die of chronic illness, we die of heart disease, we die of cancer treatments, we we die of uh, pulmonary disease, we die of strokes. Uh, more and more people, unfortunately, are dying as a result of Alzheimer's. And while all these things, you, it's hard to say that there's a direct food connection. Of course, we believe there is a direct food connection. And what we start feeding ourselves, both preconception and then during a pregnancy, and then what we what are, we're fed as children, uh, what we grow up through our teens and then into adulthood, the nature of the types of foods that we eat and, and feed our families has very much to do with uh, with chronic illness, and it didn't matter which part of the country, uh, what part of the world, excuse me, people grew up. They they more or less ate foods that were indigenous, most common to their specific areas, and so different cultures may have different foods, but they there was the aspect that they were whole foods. Uh, they were uh, often locally grown as as much as that was possible. We're much more, of course, into organic foods. Organic foods uh, 30 and 40 years ago and 100 years ago, of course, weren't uh, that big an issue because there wasn't really a lot of fertilizers and things that are used commercially now. So the diet became a very common um, overlap of what of why people developed chronic disease. And then there are some very simple things of that that people were doing that uh, t- that I talked about in all these healing arts and. Sometimes they're so obvious that we tend to overlook them. Something as simple as uh, taking time every day to do breathing exercises. Uh, Those of your listeners who uh, perhaps do yoga uh, or tai chi or qigong or any of those types of uh, healing arts, you're trained to do deep breathing. And we, as a society, however, very often don't often think about breathing. It's an unconscious, there's an unconsciousness about it. Uh, we just sort of take it for granted. But if we truly consciously think about our breath, take in air, hold our breath, and slowly breathe out, that is one of the, the most important uh, healing therapies that anybody could do for themselves, especially somebody who has a chronic illness. Because in chronic illness, we believe that the, the body's mechanisms for keeping itself in balance gets out of balance. So from the food aspect, it gets out of balance from not getting adequate levels of oxygen in, which means we can't can't get rid of uh, the most common waste product in our bodies, which is carbon dioxide. And it's always interesting because we always think of uh, external uh, impurities, uh, pollution and insecticides and pesticides and heavy metals and mercury exposures from various things. And then we we uh, overlook the fact that our cells, every cell in our body, is making a waste product, that being carbon dioxide. And if we don't breathe or we're not able to get oxygen, more often than not getting enough oxygen, what we die of is carbon dioxide poisoning because we can't get it out of our bodies. So two very simple things, breathing exercises, um, diet, Another thing that was very common among people who were getting chronic diseases and what we're suggesting all these healing arts is that we need to move. Uh, you know, we, now we call it exercise, but it wasn't called exercise in these old cultures. It was just taken for granted that 
uh, you moved every day, uh, you needed to either walk or in some way physically engage your body in doing day-to-day things, uh, which were is, is a very positive things. In all cultures that, that have longevity, uh, you find that uh, they were very active in that way, and much less so, of course, in our present society of what uh, potentially is a, an issue or a problem. So just simple movement. Um, another that overlapped uh, most of people's cultures is what they would drink on a day-to-day basis. And to this day, every culture survives on drinking water. Uh, and we know that the amount of fresh water in the world, in some cases, is uh, getting less and less. There's uh, some countries, unfortunately, that have a great deal of difficulty getting fresh water. There is a concern that uh, at some point we may get to a point where having fresh water may become a considerable issue because of the the ice caps melting and will we continue to have uh, enough water uh, for for everybody to be able to drink. And I know Canada right now is the country that that is perceived to have the most fresh water in the entire world. So one day we'll see if we they, we may need to tap that uh, type of a resource. So right. food, water, movement, all very common things. Yeah, the common things are just the basics, but are so powerful in in preventing from these you know conditions from developing. You know, and and I can I can just picture some of the listeners listening like, okay, I already have you know this disease or that disease, and I'm looking at these different things you're listing and saying, okay, I'm beyond that point. You know, what, what can you say to those to those listeners? Uh, well, the reality is with somebody with chronic disease, you're not beyond that point. Uh, our goal, goal with, uh, with any patient as physicians when somebody has a chronic disease is to move them, first of all, to try and identify why they, why they have that particular uh, illness, uh, whatever it is, whatever it's been named. And, and we start uh, searching for the reasons that those types of illnesses occurred. Very often when uh, patients come to a doctor, you know, what the, the model is is such that you, we, uh, you know, we do our history and our, our examination and our uh, lab testing, and you know, the patient is told that they have, you know, a specific, the name of a specific condition. And they think that that's what our goal is, is to treat the condition. But in reality, as a naturopathic physician, my goal is not so much to treat the disease, but to try and help them understand why they don't have health. Um, and if you don't have health, uh, then you may have a disease. And uh, no matter what you do, no matter what modality, what therapy, uh, whether it's taking a, a pharmaceutical medication or whether it's taking a, a, an herb or a homeopathic remedy or taking a vitamin or a mineral, um, you know, any type of therapy, you still have to come down to what does the body need on a day-to-day basis. And if you can't supply it, then the best of uh, medications, botanicals, homeopathics, uh, nutraceuticals, vitamins, minerals, are, are only going to be minimally effective. And it's one of the reasons that chronic disease becomes more and more chronic, because we overlook the simplest things to uh, facilitate the body's ability to heal itself. If we, if, you know, an analogy I like is, uh, if you were to take a, uh, you know an eight ounce glass and fill it up with crystal clear water uh, and look through it, you'd be able to see through it. Uh, when a patient has a chronic disease, what often happens in the in the body is because our bodies are made up of about sixty five to seventy five percent water. So what we need is we need that the glass or the body to be as clean as possible. 
but if you were to put several teaspoons of sand or salt uh, in the water and then stir it up, when you start it, to, when you try to look through it, you can't look through it because it's all cloudy. So the, the the simple things of diet, the simple things of breathing, the simple things of moving and drinking water, are an attempt to clear out some of that cloud, some of that that we call it toxicity, uh, away from the body. And when we're when you're able to do that, the medications, be it whatever one is utilizing for their particular illness, have an and significantly enhanced effectiveness for the patient. So patients who have chronic illnesses, in many cases I have been told that their chronic illness unfortunately can never get better. But if you look at the model with which the patient is being told that, the main reason that they can never get better is because they never return their body to a place, the medical word is homeostasis, the, the common word is balance. Because once the body is in balance, it's it's really not possible to have a, a chronic illness. It is true that some chronic illnesses have passed the so-called point of no return, but until we start to uh, treat somebody who has a chronic illness, and whether it's cancer or heart disease or congestive heart failure uh, or emphysema or they've had a stroke or they have diabetes or maybe they have fibromyalgia, uh, maybe they have a chronic uh, neurological uh, type illness. The component of the treatment, in my patient population anyway, has to involve those very basic type treatments because the long-term goal is to become healthy. And the way you maintain health is to maintain through those types of day-to-day lifestyle choices. So there isn't any patient with any chronic disease who personally I haven't uh been able to treat who does not see some degree of improvement. I have a very biased um, statement. I can't prove it. It's just an observation. But I truly believe that if many of people out there would do the simplest things, they would look at their diet, they would get some support and help as to what is the correct diet, because that can be very challenging for any one individual. And there isn't any one diet that's the right diet for, for everybody. We have to try and individualize it uh, to the patient. If they were to eat foods that were the that were supportive of their health, as opposed to perhaps interfering with uh, some health issues, uh, if they were to truly uh, drink uh, enough water to sort of clear things out, if they would were able to move uh, if in that capability, uh, those type, on a daily basis, I really believe that half the problems that people go to physicians for. Would not would not be there anymore. So it's never too late, and in fact, uh, chronic disease. I feel that this is the first thing that you need to do uh, is to do these most simple things before you even start adding uh, other types of therapies. And if we read back, if we go back into um, you know, one of my seminars, I I uh, have, a, have a book that I recommend. It was written and published in 1882. Uh, about what what are the reasons that people get sick, and if, you know if we ask where to ask the, the general public, many times the, it's it's because that you were exposed to a virus or you were bitten by a tick and have Lyme disease, um, or you had an accident, uh, you have traumas, uh, you perhaps are under a great deal of stress, perhaps you don't like your job um, because it's not uh, totally satisfying for you. 
And we could go through a pretty lengthy list of those types of things. But what I've come to realize is those don't really cause disease. Those are the triggers. Those are the things that set off a disease. And if we go back into the old literature from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, you see that they wrote the very same things that we talk about today. Uh, we talk about the idea that, um, you know, the, the, the land, the, the, the soils are depleted. Uh, we don't have enough uh, nutrients from our food. So the idea is, is that we should be getting all that from uh, perhaps from uh, the idea of nutrient uh, supplements and things, but the reality is we really need to be getting it from our 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 diet and be looking at most specifically uh, at the types of foods that that people are eating. You know, there was a book written hundred years ago that we uh, read in naturopathic school, and my belief of the com- most common cause of diseases is, you know, and to put it simply, is a violation of natural laws. And Dr. Lindlar, who published the book in 1914, was a naturopathic. He actually was a medical doctor, um, and and 100 years ago published that. In his opinion, the the primary cause of disease was a violation of natural laws. And in 1914, what he published, what he believed was a violation of natural laws that he wrote was 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 overeating, was the uh, use of too much alcohol or too much coffee or tea. It was the fact that we worked too hard or the people of the day worked too hard. Uh, Many of the people were doing night work, which is not really a healthy thing for the body to heal with. Uh, Many people were in constant fear about something or they worried about something. They had very poor air quality 100 years ago. Uh, They didn't get enough exercise. And the last thing that he said he felt that led to to, uh, diseases was loveless marriages challenging relationships, uh, those types of things. And we look at those in 2011 and say, well, how is that different from what we see in many of uh, our patient population and people sort of on a day-to-day basis? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to start somebody who has a chronic illness, uh, we need to make sure that those are not a part of the picture. And then once they're not part of the picture, we can start doing our specific types of therapies that that will significantly improve whatever the, the specific condition is that a patient may have in a very positive way. Yeah, very eloquently stated. I want to give the uh, the phone number out for callers. It's 818-495-6919. I'm going to take a caller right now. This is from the 916 area code. So go ahead and bring them on. Caller, are you there? Caller, are you there in the 916 area code? Yes, I'm here. Hi. What's your name? Where are you calling Hi. from? Uh, my name is Chuck. I'm calling from Northern California in Sacramento. Hi. What's your, caller for, or what's your question for Dr. Tom? Oh, my question is, is what alternatives would I have when it comes to blood pressure opposed to the prescription drugs to the natural way of treating it? Well, you actually have a lot of a lot of options and a lot of choices. One of the, one of the most interesting things that I find with looking at blood pressure um, is trying to identify the reason that you have blood pressure. May I ask how old you are? I'm 58. 58. So typically in a 58-year-old patient, we look at the two most common things that are felt to be related to blood pressure, which is heart uh, and the kidney. 
So many of the medications that are prescribed are either have a direct effect on the heart or they have an effect on the kidney to try and help change the water balance. Um, is the medication working for you? Does it, it work? It seems to be. It seems so, to be. And are they related? Do you have more heart medication versus the kidney, or do you have a bit of both? Well, I don't. I just have the heart medication. I don't have a kidney problem. So. Okay. So, so if you have a if you have a heart issue, uh, or excuse me, that your blood pressure is managed by giving you a heart medication, then then there are a number of very common things. Things like nutrients. Uh, very commonly, for example, when there's a direct things like coenzyme Q10, things like magnesium, things like taurine, or three specific. Uh, um, nutraceuticals there's the the most common but uh, herbal medicine that's used is hawthorn or cotagus uh, it can be used in a variety of forms and then you know the dosing needs to be individualized and uh for you know based on you know your own specific situation and condition uh how much hawthorn you would take as an example but those are very typical type things that actually can do a very good job of managing one's blood pressure but in addition to that, that I also have to look, or we also want to look at, is there other things that may be related to causing the blood pressure to be elevated? For example, sometimes in some patients, I find that uh, I don't have to do any of those types of nutrients. It's because it's not really a heart issue at all. Uh, it's more perhaps a nervous system problem. Uh, perhaps the person tends to run a little more anxious uh, than they would, would like to be. And just that, that increased sympathetic drive is what's causing their blood pressure to be elevated. Um, there's also what we call a survival mode, where people are kind of always worried about, uh, you know, what's what's coming next. That constant overstimulation can have a, have the aspect of increasing somebody's blood pressure. And many times we're not even aware of what these stressors are. Uh, I always remember reading uh, Dr. Sellier's work from McGill University way back in the 30s and who was accredited with sort of uh, giving medicine the whole idea of the stress response. And he wrote that if an individual uh, went to four weddings on four consecutive weekends and then the next four went to four funerals, the body would not be able to differentiate the difference as far as stress is concerned. So very often there's things that affect us on a day-to-day basis that we're not even aware of from a stress perspective. And that's really what how you have to individualize uh, one's specific uh, case. And so is it the botanic, the, the crotagus or the coenzyme Q10 or magnesium or taurine as, as examples or even calcium that may be the most beneficial for you? Or should we be looking somewhere else? Should we, we be looking at your individual stress response when... And we're all stressed by something. Uh, that may be the biggest issue as far as your blood pressure. So whatever it is, uh, blood pressure is is one that we actually can have pretty good tools uh, to use in alternative in alternative therapies. In addition to the other things I said, your diet uh, that you're probably not already told about salt in your diet and you know alternative forms of salt, uh, using lots of uh, minerals, especially especially to get potassium which is going to be uh, one of the most important ones, which you get in fruits and vegetables. Uh, looking at the idea of, of drinking adequate levels of water so you can uh, flush your system out, uh, getting enough sleep, uh, getting some degree of activity and you know your w- proper weight, all those types of things, also a very positive aspect for blood pressure. Okay. 
Does that answer your question? Do you have a follow-up? I don't know. He's answered it all. Thanks. Great. Well, thanks for the question. Thank you. All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Very cool. And so uh, we have one more caller here. I'm going to take another caller here from the 303. Go ahead and bring you on. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. What's your name? Where are you calling from? My name is Allison, and I'm calling from Colorado. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thank you. Good. What's your question for Um, Dr. Tom? My question is, I was diagnosed with epilepsy two and a half years ago after Mm -hmm. the birth of my son, and I have simple partial seizures, which um, I'm sure you know I don't actually pass out or anything. I'm still awake. Um, Right. And I've been on different medications the last couple years. A lot of them didn't work. I'm finally on one that works. Um, But my question is, what can I use naturally to help with, I don't know, not only the side effects but also um, to help with my condition? Uh, May I ask how old you are? I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm like thinking I'm in my 20s, so I'm 31. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm 28, so no, <laughs> 31. Okay. All right, fair enough. Um, the the aspects of epilepsy is, you know, obviously you already aware is the fact that you're you're having some degree of, you know, the the neuro, the neurological circuits are short circuit short circuiting at times. Although you're not you're having the simple partial seizures, so you're not having sort of grand mal's and sort of loss of consciousness. However, in general, for seizures. Uh, what we have found sort of in the alternative area, there are several nutrients, just like I was just mentioning for blood pressure, that have proven to be uh, incredibly helpful and effective. So one of the things that, uh, as, a, as a physician, that I look at when patients have epilepsy is to make sure that you're not eating something that you're reacting to. You're not, you're not, there's not a food sensitivity or food allergy that may be a part of your day-to-day diet that may be in some way in your case, having a neurological thing. And the most common food that that in neurology that, 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 that I recommend and that I teach is that the first thing you should do is you should remove gluten from your diet or alternatively you should have your physician test you to see if you have a reaction to gluten because you can look for specific antibodies. You may not even realize. You do not have to have any type of gastrointestinal problems to be having reactions to gluten because there was a, a, published, a study published um, about uh, 10 or 15 years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that stated that 57% of all neurological problems in, may have an underlying core issue with gluten sensitivity. Not celiac disease, gluten sensitivity. So the first thing I would tell you to do is either do a clinical trial by taking the gluten out, and you need to take it out for at least six to 10 weeks before you challenge it, and then eat it again and challenge your body or alternatives. Ask your physician to test you for uh, gluten sensitivity. So that would be the first thing that I would suggest that you do. The nutrients that we have found to be particularly helpful for people who have uh, a wide variety, and there's over uh, 50 types of epilepsy that have been identified, uh, but the most important nutrients are include essential fatty acids, so the inclusion of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids in the in the form of food, which of course would include uh, fish, um, would be your number one. But generally, I find with epilepsy, 
uh, I need to supplement additional amounts of essential fatty acids. So we have people take either salmon oil as a fish oil or cod liver oil in the wintertime as a little bit of extra vitamin D for people. Uh, that's helpful. So you need to include EFAs regularly, daily, every day in your diet. Uh, probably a minimum of getting about three grams of, of the DHA EPA, which is what how the fish oil gets identified and very often, if you buy a fish oil capsule, it may say 1,000 milligrams or one gram. But that's not the dose we're talking about. We're talking about a dose because uh, if you read the label, it will say 1,000 milligrams equals DHA, EPA of you know of maybe 300 milligrams, and you'd need to take enough. So I generally recommend in neurology aspects to take a liquid form of the EFAs because it's just instead of having to take so many pills. So... You need to check uh, food sensitivities. Gluten is the is the key one. Uh, EFAs, uh, you need to minimally look at that. Include more fish in your diet. Um, I just mentioned for the blood pressure that you need to look at fruits and vegetables because we're trying to enhance uh, potassium uh, in the diet also, uh, which is a, which is a very important thing. Uh, folic acid, B complex. Um, and you know it's, doses would have to be individualized to whatever else is going on for your your own uh, specific situation, and then magnesium and taurine very similar aspects to what happens in blood pressure, but I found the combination from a diet perspective and in some cases uh, helping to um, you know give people those particular nutrients as well as the food aspect it can have a that's where I would start there and then if that doesn't quite do it. It will certainly help you with um, minimizing side effects from medication and just the the things I started off with, drinking more water, moving, getting your, getting outside on a regular basis. You live in a beautiful state uh, to be able to do that. So that, over a period of time, we found to have, we have had quite good success uh, with a number of patients who have epilepsy. Great. Well, you know, um, to, to talk about the gluten sensitivity i um have been off of gluten for two months now and i do it has helped tremendously and um i i just got off it because i was having a lot of stomach issues and um after doing that it it actually did help my you know neurological state as well so um but i you know the side effects are really as you know you know with pharmaceuticals are really really bad with um anti-seizure medication and I guess, um, you know, my the, the troublesome thing that I have with my doctor is he wants to bandage all the side effects. He just wants to give me another medication to, you know, fix, you know, the medication that I'm on. And I just, I don't want to be on a hundred medications. So <laughs> sure, I guess sure, sure. My, question, my question to you is, um, and you kind of stated it before, I guess I should be on a lot of fish oils. And yes. um, I do I do take a magnesium uh, complex okay. and okay. Um, I I quit taking the fish oil because I heard that it wasn't good to take with epilepsy, but I guess that's not true. Um, I guess what, you're, what I'm hearing from you is it is safe to take, and then also I I, do, I wanted to make sure the B complex was safe to take with my anti seizure medication. Uh, it's I you're going to have to ask your own physician specifically about that, but generally all I can tell you is what I do with my patients. And okay. my patients do what I basically just shared with you, and, you know, right. we modify the dose for the individual 
other whatever else is going on for the for the patient. So I have found I have found that uh, there is success in doing that. Okay. With I the can't give you specific, the, but yeah. Sorry. Okay. No, I I I was just yeah I I can okay. hear what you said, but thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I think um, that answers my question. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Great. Thanks for your question. Okay. Great. So thank you for taking those questions, Dr. Tom. I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to make a distinction between um, uh, acute and chronic disease. You know, we're saying chronic disease a lot. And, and, and what's the difference for those listeners who aren't familiar with the terminology between the two? Okay. An, an acute disease uh, is something that generally comes on very quickly. It's, you know, people, we all, everybody usually gets a cold or a flu or something like that, Uh or you have a sinus infection, or you have a, a sore throat, a strep throat, or an ear infection, or pneumonia. That comes on rather quickly. Uh, acute conditions, uh, generally speaking, in medicine, in the medical terminology, uh, also have the ability to resolve. Uh, they resolve their uh, sometimes without any intervention. We don't have to do anything other than rest, uh, perhaps uh, fast for a day or two, uh, get more sleep, and the body has the ability to inherently heal itself. So acute acute disease is considered to be something that is short-lived, uh, short-acting, but a rapid onset, it can be very violent at times, it can be, it can be life-threatening because people indeed do die of uh, acute diseases. In fact, uh, the most common disease in the entire world that people die of is an acute disease, um, and it's uh, malaria. Uh, of course, it's not very common in this particular country because we don't have those mosquitoes, but uh, there's uh, many, many thousands of people who die on a daily basis because of malaria, which is an acute illness. The difference between those types of illnesses and a chronic illness, a chronic illness is one that, that gets progressively worse. It's generally felt that it's something that doesn't, in fact, it does not resolve on its own. It is the body is not capable of healing itself. Uh, the body is only able to try and control it, but it generally is perceived to be progressive, uh, slow. It interferes with activities of daily living, or we lose some of our abilities to do a variety of things, and it needs intervention. Um, you can't have a chronic disease and just sort of sit back and wait for the body to heal itself which you can do with an acute disease, depending on which acute one it is, but a chronic is just as it suggests. It's, and it's generally something that, uh, whether it lasts three months and, is, and just continues on, uh, it's, it, we put it into that particular terminology versus an acute thing. is like it should resolve generally within one, two, or three weeks uh, with intervention or, as I said, in some cases without intervention. Okay. That's the main difference is heals by itself, or the body is incapable of healing it by itself are the two big differences. Okay, and so when a person is sick, let's say they have an acute condition and they intervene and, and, and suppress, what, what is suppression exactly and, and how does that have more further consequences to leading to chronic diseases? Uh, suppression is another word that uh, is commonly used that uh, many of your callers will probably be familiar with. Suppression is where you... Um, prevent the body's natural ability to respond uh, in, in, in a way that it would uh, naturally respond. And at times, 
and in fact, and a number of times, suppression is necessary because if you didn't suppress the reaction of the body, the, the unfortunately the patient may die. But well, I'm going to take something that's, that the patient wouldn't die of, but is incredibly annoying, uh, that many probably are familiar with, especially if you have children, uh, is common eczema, dry skin uh, to some people, but it uh, often happens in young children and toddlers or in babies where either behind the ears or in the elbow creases uh, are very common spots where you get these very itchy, dry, dry skin that comes out. Uh, the child scratches at it. It uh, may become secondarily infected. And, and very commonly, uh, one of the medications that's used is topical hydrocortisone cream. And the topical hydrocortisone cream uh, will make it go away. In other words, it, it heals up. But then when you stop applying the hydrocortisone cream, it comes back. So you apply more hydrocortisone cream. Uh, so many times in those types of situations, over the length of the time that you uh, you apply the, the whatever the medication is, um, it goes away, but unfortunately, in the future, what you end up getting is a more serious, deeper condition. And for us as naturopathic physicians, what we've observed and conventional physicians have also observed, so if you have a three- or four-year-old that has had eczema, and very often eczema is also related to the food sensitivities that I just mentioned with gluten for epilepsy, but with, with eczema... It's, uh, food sensitivities becomes one of the most important uh, players as far as healing is concerned. So we have a three or four year old that, uh, you know, they, they come in, they they see their pediatrician. Pediatrician says, uh, just apply this uh, lotion, the hydrocortisone, topically, and it'll get better. And it gets better, and it may wax and wane a little bit. Uh, and then we see the child again at seven years of age, and they haven't had any eczema, but now they're coming in with asthma. Uh, which is a very common scenario that we very, very often see children who have a history because allergy is a very often trigger for uh, for eczema, and allergy is a very common trigger for asthma also. And and what we see naturopathically is when we then when the, when the child comes in and is seven or eight years old and you treat the asthma, not the asthma gets better, but now the eczema comes back. And then if you if you apply hydrocortisone cream, they get the asthma back. So asthma is a so-called new condition. It's not a new condition. It's the same condition, unfortunately, that's being created as a result of the first treatment. So that is what we call suppression. Suppression is where you create a deeper disease than the original one that you were treating. So people who take medications for whatever condition that they're taking, it doesn't. all medications definitely do not cause suppression. Only the aspect of taking a medication that we say drives the disease deeper would we apply that particular terminology to. Many medications that uh, people take, whether it's a prescription medication or whether it's a, a, an herbal medication or homeopathic medication or whatever, uh, makes the patient feel better. That's called palliation. It palliates it. It's to relieve the symptom. Uh, and palliation, while you're working on a cure, uh, which is the uh, complete healing of the body on all levels, uh, is, is often necessary to make a patient comfortable uh, in order to heal. Um, Allison, who just talked about her her uh, simple partial uh, seizures, for example, while she's working on the idea towards cure, it's necessary that, that she uh, take a medication and do some nutrients, I think, uh, to try and heal this, and then you get to a point, hopefully, in the future 
that you don't need to take the medication and you may need to take nutrients, but you still have to do all the original things that I talked about. And then you do not get suppression. And in fact, you move from somebody who has a, a chronic illness, goes to we palliate them, we work on cure at the same time uh, without suppression, and then they don't no longer need the medication. So very, very common things that we see in medicine on a day-to-day basis with our patients. So, so in your practice, you're able to take patients who are very sick on many, many medications, and oftentimes move them up that ladder to where you know they may not have to be on medication or be on less medication and just live a more, um, you know, a healthier life. So that's a, it's a common thing that you see in your practice, correct? Uh, that is very common, and the goal is to uh, be able to feel really good, have high levels of energy and good sleep and good appetite and good digestion, et cetera, on a day-to-day basis with the absolute minimum of things that you have to take, whether it's alternative or prescription. And if patients are taking prescription medications, to try and minimize the dosage of that prescription medication, while at the same time, as you just said, uh, trying to minimize any potential side effects without having to take more medication. Um, so sometimes we can we can treat a side effect of a medication that may be essential for the patient to take without having another medication by doing some of the things that we're talking about, whether it's a botanical medicine or a, or a nutraceutical medicine, uh, whatever. Uh, that can be a very positive way. And once again, we I'd like to emphasize that it's important that it's not just about them taking things. It's it's really important that the patients do things, and uh, doing things like like exercising and going to bed on time and getting proper sleep and having fun every day and you know those types of things are equally important to anything that we may prescribe, but for them to take. Right, and I love one thing that you said is that you were putting botanical medicine in the same categories as. As medication, and it's true because you know just because a patient's taking an herbal medicine doesn't mean that it's working um, with the body's healing ability. You know, I mean, you can you can suppress with an herb. You know, it's just the same philosophy. It's like instead of taking um, an antibiotic for your strep throat, you're taking you know herbal remedy for your strep throat. It's still the same philosophy. So you know, for those listeners out there that think that they're really working with the body by taking herbs, not always. You can definitely suppress with botanical medicine too. So, you know, not necessarily... Right, and our goal, obviously, is not to suppress, but uh, thank you for clarifying that. That absolutely is true. The, I think there's a misconception that, you know, all, all these natural remedies, you know, don't cause any harm. Well, unfortunately, they can cause harm if they're not used properly and they're not used in the hands of somebody who has some understanding and experience with using them. Um, a homeopathic remedy or a botanical remedy or even a nutraceutical, a vitamin or mineral not used in the proper dosage can have a very negative effect that can cause un- un- untold or very uncomfortable side effects that obviously that's not what our goal is. So we need to be knowledgeable about what we're doing. It's, just because it's so-called natural doesn't mean it's uh, always healthy. Right, it's like arsenic is natural healthy. and lead is natural, but right. it's not necessarily the best thing to take. So um, right. we can't do a show on, on chronic disease without touching on autoimmune disease. And um, I was looking up a statistic today that showed that the National Institute of Health estimates that there are 23.5 million Americans suffering from autoimmune disease. And just to put that into perspective, um, cancer affects 9 million Americans and heart disease affects 22 million. And as you know, we were mentioning before, the top causes of death in the country are cancer and heart disease. So while they're killing more people, autoimmune disease is actually more common. 
Um, so what's going on with this? You know, what do you see as being, um, you know, the, the cause of all these autoimmune diseases forming? Is it that we're just seeing it more, or is it that there actually are more autoimmune diseases, and, and what's going on with this? No, I believe there is indeed more autoimmune disease. That is an interesting statistic that you just raised. And what we've in, in autoimmune disease, relatively speaking, in medicine is a so-called new player because before the uh, 1960s, autoimmune disease wasn't even recognized as a recognizable disease. And now we know that there's greater than 80 uh, autoimmune diseases that exist that, that uh, people have. And uh, for the listeners, what an autoimmune disease means, it's, it means the body is reacting against itself. It's reacting, it's destroying itself. Um, one of the most common autoimmune diseases is the autoimmune disease against a thyroid gland called Hashimoto's. Hashimoto's thyroiditis, where the, uh, the antibodies that are part of our immune system go awry and attack the thyroid gland, and they start to break it down, and the, and the patient then becomes hypothyroid or low-functioning thyroid, and they have all the symptoms of, like, low energy, and they uh, can't lose weight, and they, they may be more constipated and very dry skin, et cetera, et cetera. And Hashimoto's is the most common cause of low thyroid function. So we, we look at that as a common rheumatoid arthritis, of course. Uh, uh, lupus is a very common one. A type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And there almost isn't any tissue in the body that doesn't have the potential of, of the body reacting against itself. So if we look at, so from my perspective of how I look at it, uh, without getting too technical into immunology, uh, there's, there's the body itself has its own immune system, immune system that needs to be kept in balance. We know with autoimmune disease, the body is significantly out of balance, and a lot of our therapies are therefore directed at trying to reestablishing a balance. In the conventional model, uh, what the attempt is is to simply try and, for the most part, try and stop the immune system from reacting by, unfortunately, by suppression. So we see steroids as the number one treatment for most autoimmune disease is not for Hashimoto's because most people will basically be given thyroid hormone. But for, for many of like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, that is a, can be a debilitating uh, autoimmune disease against joints and uh, many other body tissues. So I think we need to look at autoimmune diseases, what is happening in the immune system, and two common players that we see that are very supportive to try and help autoimmune disease, whichever of the 80-plus autoimmune disease a patient may have, they may benefit from, but once again, they'd have to individually uh, try and uh, determine that with uh, with their physician, is that you need to look at the, the state and health of their gastrointestinal tract. So it's where I believe that in my patients with autoimmune disease, all of them take probiotics very healthy probiotic, which are the natural flora that live in our gastrointestinal system. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, have seen the ads on television for Activia yogurt, and it talks about 80% of your immune system lies within your digestive tract, and that, in fact, is true. So we need to support it with the proper food, foods that we can tolerate and that we're not reacting to. Gluten is another very common reactor uh, in the whole autoimmune picture, so and we have one of the unfortunate things about gluten, of course, it's, it's, um, it's added to more and more foods. And not only is it added to foods, it's in a high number of medications that are not on the label. And many times people may be uh, reacting to the medication. They think it's a side effect, but they're simply reacting to the gluten. That's a filler uh, in the medication and the pill that they're taking. 
So we look at the diet. We we uh, supplement uh, the patient with healthy probiotics, or we have them eat uh, cultured foods, such as yogurt uh, or kimchi or miso. Um, you know, those types of, uh, of nat- or sauerkraut is another one uh, that that provides uh, natural probiotics, but. When we have an autoimmune, an active autoimmune process, we usually can't get a high enough dosage, so we supplement the probiotics. Uh, the essential fatty acids are something again that become extremely important. Trying to find the right balance of uh, EPA and DHA are an important component in dealing with any patient with autoimmune. And yes, we're seeing more because in 1940, even though they, the diseases existed, they didn't recognize them. So we are recognizing more and more what's happening with, unfortunately, a single player of often uh, immune suppression is what the treatment is, you know, whether it's in the, neuro- in the neurological system like multiple sclerosis, uh, if it's in the endocrine system like Hashimoto's or the other aspect of Graves' disease, which is a hyperactive, a high act, an over-functioning a thyroid gland or, you know, whichever. We look at all these and... There, the number of people with autoimmune, as you said, is outdistance the number of people with cancer and with heart disease, yet those are the killers. But very often autoimmune disease significantly impairs a person's function, especially of their daily activity, and therefore has a very major effect on their overall health. Uh, but there is hope that uh, by doing some of the things we've talked about this evening, you can start to get that under control, and hopefully, if you're on a medication, decrease the medication uh, to a point where there's either less or no side effects, and, and in the best scenario, could you possibly even get totally off the medication? And that would be the, the most ideal scenario. It happens in practice. It's not every patient that can do that, but uh, working with your physician, uh, the goal would be to be able to achieve that type of a goal uh, to get uh, somebody off those meds. So you're right. It's The numbers are increasing and continue to increase on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting t- t- statistic. Um, you know, and and going back to something that you mentioned earlier, you talked about getting um, enough sleep. And you know, so often we talk about health as just being diet and exercise and supplements, but you know, we know the importance of sleep, its role in preventing disease. How important is sleep, and specifically sleeping in the dark? Uh, thanks for bringing up the dark. Um, people with chronic disease. There's several things. I, I actually said this in class the other day. There are four things that I wish we could get added into uh, everyday um, houses when when somebody builds a house. I wish we could get everybody getting a water filter built into the house. I wish every house could be built in with an air filter to try and obviously purify the water and air. But I also wish that in the shower that they would put removable shower heads, um, sort of like this tel- this telephone uh, aspect of, uh, you know, because it helps very much to be able to do what we call local hydrotherapy to different body parts, uh, whether it's an injury or just to support circulation, et cetera. And the last thing I wish there would be in houses is blackout curtains uh, because it it truly is from the physiologic basis of where do we sleep the best, how does the body heal the best, is when you sleep in the total dark. So sleeping, uh, and the, there's enough research, uh, I'm sure this is not new information for your listeners, but between eight and eight and a half hours is truly the amount of sleep that our body needs to regenerate itself, to heal itself, to repair itself, uh, is what the goal is. 
And so, and the ideal is not only should we get eight to eight and a half hours, but the preferred time to go to bed is between at 10 and 11 p.m. And that's simply based on straight physiology of how our how our hormones are working, how our cortisol levels are ideally at their lowest levels, how our repair hormone, our growth hormone, is at its peak levels, because all healing that needs to occur in either an acute or chronic disease happens when we sleep. When we're awake and talking and engaging, we're just sort of maintaining, but we're not really repairing. Uh, the repair comes from when we're sleeping with the aspect of balancing these hormones. So the recommendation for our patients are to get to bed between 10 and 11 and then to sleep ideally to about 7 or 7.30 in the morning, getting to 8 to 8 and a half hours. And that's the ideal. People who feel that they can get by with less sleep, let's say oh, we have a patient, oh, I can get by with six and a half hours. Generally, what they're doing then during the day is they're, they're needing or they're requiring some type of a stimulant, maybe as simply as a strong cup of coffee in the morning to sort of get them up and going. And while that is not an issue, you know, on an occasional basis, day in and day out and day in and day out for years and years, takes a tremendous toll on, on, a, on a person and uh, I know we need to sleep. It sounds like, wow, that's an awful lot of sleep. Yes, we need to sleep one-third of our life, our entire mm-hmm. life, needs to be spent sleeping because that's the only way we can repair ourselves. Right. It's critical for health. It's critical for somebody with any type of disorder, acute or chronic, uh, would benefit tremendously by working towards eight to eight and a half hours of sleep nightly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, melatonin, that's secreted from your pineal gland in the dark, that is a, a cancer therapy that's used in natural medicine, and, you know, that's secreted naturally from your body. So if you already have cancer, that makes it even that much more important to get good quality sleep with, you know, blackout curtains and making sure, and even if you have your nightlight on, you know, cover the nightlight. And you, they show that, that kids that, that are exposed to nightlights have, you know, higher incidence of disease, and it's just, it's just amazing. Just so, something as simple as a nightlight that can disrupt your hormones, you know, from preventing certain diseases. So it's really incredible. You're absolutely right. Sometimes the simplest things make the biggest impact uh, for our patient population. And sometimes just uh, doing something like that, and not only your nightlight, as I said, but, you know, we have people cover their alarm clocks or their clock radios because of that red light that often is there. And it can be something as simple as that that may, be, may make a difference in the long term, especially, as you just said, for children. Uh, that um, children who sleep in the dark and very often, oh, they wake up and they're afraid. Uh, sleeping in the dark uh, and you know dealing with whatever other issues about nightmares or that that can be extremely beneficial for children as far as their health is concerned also mhm yeah absolutely something so simple it's crazy um right. so you touched earlier on on food and specifically um for cultures and in preventing disease and um how can so for our listeners that are tuning in how can they find out the best diet for them specifically? Uh, that's probably one of the most difficult questions that uh, we can answer in a generic type statement. The best uh, way, the ideal diet for any one individual, uh, I'd say the first thing that you do is, the, if you are not under the care of a physician, is that you just write down what you eat. Just keep track of it. Keep a food journal. And when you're keeping a food journal, keep also a symptom journal uh, of how you feel day to day. And, you know, what we do as practitioners is we have our patients do food journals and then we try and correlate what they've been eating with how they're feeling and other things that are going on in their life. And many times 
for example, if it's headaches, let's say if somebody is getting, you know, they'll they'll start to see a trend that every time they eat uh, a specific food, uh, they, you know, a few hours or the next day, uh, they may be experiencing a headache. So that may be one aspect. However, if they're seeing a physician, it's very likely that the physician may recommend some type of a food sensitivity or a food allergy test, which can be a blood test, uh, one of the ways of, of assessing that. Uh, Dr. Diadamo recommended the blood type diet of uh, and finding out what your blood type is and then reading a book about of that aspect. Uh, there's many books written. You know, I've mentioned gluten and uh, a variety of things tonight. Uh, somebody may look at that. Uh, somebody may do what's called the anti-inflammatory diet, and there's uh, books written about that one. The anti-inflammatory diet r- removes the most common uh, foods that create inflammation in the body, and, and you do clinical trials. So you follow these diets for, I would say, a minimum of six weeks, and then you start reintroducing foods, uh, paying attention to particularly the type of symptom that you may experience that in many cases the patient is not even aware of was a problem eating food because many people will think, you know, like, for example, red wine. Red wine is or aged cheese is a very common trigger for people who get migraine headaches. But they usually have recognized the fact that every time they have red wine that they get a headache, and they say, oh, gee, I think it's the red wine, it's the sulfites in the red wine. However, most other health problems are much more subtle, and and you don't recognize because it doesn't occur within uh, a short period of time. Somebody who gets hives uh, shortly after eating strawberries and their lips swell up or their tongue swells or they have itching in their mouth and say, oh, gee, every time I eat strawberries this happens, I better not eat strawberries because I'm sensitive to it. But the vast majority of foods are are much more subtle than that. So we can do uh, an elimination diet where you take away the most common food allergens. We can keep food journals. We can follow the Diadamo diet. We can follow a gluten-free diet, an anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, Some people will do different types of applied kinesiology for testing or perhaps an electroacupuncture type evaluation for food sensitivity. But one way or the other, the, the bottom line with looking at foods, the right diet, um, if you eat a food and it causes a problem, then then at that point we need to take it out. But the long-term goal is not to say, oh, I can't eat food X, and to think I'll never be able to eat that food. That shouldn't be your goal at all. Your goal should be to, if I'm reacting to a food now that's that is causing me some of my problems, then the goal will be to make yourself healthy, work with your practitioner to make yourself healthy, uh, and by working with yourself on a healthy basis, uh, you can be then able to eat the food again because you will be able to create tolerance to that particular food. So I've used all kinds of diets uh, for people, uh, trying to individualize it, and then eventually, over a period of time of working with people, especially patients who have a number of problems, uh, they are able to tell me that every time I eat food X, uh, I have a problem. I used to not be able to eat this food, but now I can eat it. Uh doesn't mean you can eat it every day, three times a day, but it means you can eat it, uh, and it doesn't have to be totally excluded from the diet. Mm-hmm. So there's a that's a huge discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it obviously, it requires a, a lot of diligence on the patient's part, a lot of diligence uh, on the physician's part to try and find the right choices. Because uh, as I mentioned when I started, uh, diet was the most common overlap, no matter what type of modality or what type of medicine that people practice. 
everybody talked about the right diet for the patient will have an extremely important role in how they feel. And whether it's high blood pressure or epilepsy or cancer or an autoimmune disease uh, or even toenail fungus, uh, the right diet can make a huge difference uh, for people. Absolutely. Food is medicine. You can have medicine, medicine in every single meal, Yeah, regardless right. of the condition you're dealing with. And in right. all of those different um, types of diets all go back to eating food in their natural state. You know, they're all unprocessed, and that's why they're all, you know, successful to an extent. So, yeah, having that relationship one with your body ter- and knowing one, how you feel. Go ahead. One of the terms I often uh, have patients uh, when they ask me what they should eat, I said, if you can name it, you can eat it. Uh, right. What that means is uh, pretty much nothing then for can come out of a box or a can. You can't read any labels because so you have to be able to look at the food, a whole food, and say that's a potato, or that's mm-hmm. a that's a an onion, or you know that's a a piece of fish, or whatever it is. But if you can't name it, you can't eat it. Mm-hmm. So it eliminates pretty much all types of processed foods, and it makes people have a very very healthy diet. Right, no weird ingredients in there. Do you have time for one more no question, Doctor Tom? Ah, uh, sure. Okay, great. I have another caller here. I'm going to bring this caller on from area code seven six zero. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Great. What's your name? Where are you calling from? My name is Murphy. I'm actually calling from uh, Mission Valley, San Diego. And Hi, you're local. Yes, I sure am. I've been really informed today. I think your show is great, and I've just been sitting here listening and got a lot of great information. Um, I did have one question, and I just really wanted to know what is some of the, uh, the good, good foods to eat for optimum uh, colon health? Um, I don't know. If that makes sense, but just to number one to cleanse your colon, also to maintain a healthy colon, and like you were saying about the, the digestive tract. Right. So, um, in addition to what I've already emphasized as far as fruits and vegetables, because what fruits and vegetables right. are providing us with are mostly uh-huh. what we call antioxidants, and when the colon is being challenged by whatever, the we use the antioxidants that we find, and whether it's uh, Vitamin C or vitamin A or zinc, um, you know, or any of the other common nutrients that we get in fruits and vegetables. Uh, so that's that's first aspect. And what they also provide us with is a healthy dose of fiber. Uh, so we know in the Western culture, in our culture, one of the most common reasons that we have a lot of colon issues is because a lot of our food, a lot of the food, has had uh, the fiber removed. And versus many other cultures, we eat only about one-third of the number of the amount of fiber uh, that other cultures let. And we have both the soluble fiber, things like an oatmeal, and the insoluble fiber, which are like the, the uh, husks of uh, legumes and beans and, you know, those types of foods. But you need to have a mix of those on an everyday basis. They act as, you know, it's known, we call it roughage or fiber. And so you combine adequate levels of whole grains uh, for the for the patient, which will include fiber, which, of course, we're also getting some fiber in the uh, fruits and vegetables that we're eating, which means we shouldn't be peeling apples and we shouldn't be peeling the pear or the peach because we're getting fiber in those particular aspects. Uh, we're getting, um, you know, those in the roughage aspect in a variety of vegetables also. But the whole grains will add specific uh, types of things. So... Those are really are your two big ones. 
and then we're trying to what we're trying to minimize are uh, the foods that create a lot of damage within the lining. Actually, I should add another food that we that I mentioned earlier, and that's foods that have a lot of probiotics, because you constantly need to be replenishing on a daily basis your your natural flora. If we when they analyze uh, our stool and fecal material, we realize that most of that fecal material is made up of uh, dead probiotics, and the and the other bulk of it is our cells that are being sloughed off. So a lot of our flora is being eliminated on a regular basis, so we need to constantly replenish that. Via diet, which as I mentioned was either things like yogurt or kimchi or sauerkraut, uh, miso soup, where we're having you know those types of uh, probiotics or a supplement of a probiotic. Probiotics, fibers, uh, lots of uh, antioxidant which is mostly in our fruits and vegetables, uh, go a long way to supporting uh, sufficient of colon health while at the same time trying to minimize processed foods where the fiber has been removed, where a lot of the uh, antioxidants have been removed, and certainly a lot of uh, we don't often get probiotics. And so when we have those types of processed foods, uh, what we don't get is we don't get as much of the scrubbing action, we'll say, uh, within the colon that then leads to, in the long term, unfortunately, uh, an increasing incidence of patients with colon cancer, uh, typically showing up after about age 50. Uh, and we know that colon cancer is a disease that often takes 20 to 40 years to manifest. So colon cancer diagnosed in a 53-year-old didn't just start last year. It's probably been going on since the teens or even the 20s. Uh, and often we can look back at the diet that a person has been eating to try and appreciate and why that is understanding and it has lacked adequate levels of antioxidants. It has lacked adequate levels of fiber. It has lacked the proper probiotics to try and maintain uh, ideal colon health. So that's definitely the where I would uh, start with uh, with any patient. Does that answer your question, Murphy? Yes. Great. Did you have any follow-ups? Oh, no, that was very informative. Thank you. I Pretty much answered all my questions. Great. Thanks, Thanks very much. Having <laughs> okay. me. Right. Oh, Dr. Tom, I, I kept you longer than I told you I'd have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share for our listeners? Um, only I'd like to uh, thank you for the opportunity to share with your listeners and uh, it's very exciting that uh, we have people who are interested in looking at health not only from having to take uh, a medication, but where they are getting more involved in their own health care and are looking for alternatives uh, from certain lifestyle things as well as supportive uh, you know, modalities, whether it's a herb or a, a nutrient or a vitamin or you know, a homeopathic remedy or whatever it is that people are taking. So I congratulate people to keep working and uh, if, if uh, tonight, for example, if you include some of the simple things we said, like uh, try to go to bed a little bit earlier if your habit is going to bed after 11 o'clock, uh, try and uh, increase the amount of water that you drink on a daily basis and decrease other things, decrease juices and coffee and that type of thing and make it more water and start looking at uh, how foods may be affecting you. And, uh, you know, if you're eating uh, some degree of processed foods, uh, let's see if we can make a change. And I'll just share a statistic that still overwhelms me in, in the... In the United States, uh, the average uh, American, unfortunately, eats 17 meals of the 21 per week away from their home. 
which means only four meals per week on average are eaten at home, which is a f- an incredible statistic. So if you could if you could make that uh, ten meals a week at home, that would have an amazing impact on people's health. And of course, that means is many people are not eating breakfast. They they go and they either drink coffee or they stop at a fast food place, and then they're out for lunch because they're at work and. They make them home for a few days, and then on weekends they go out uh, for meals. So let's try eating our meals at home in a place of uh, more serenity and that type of thing and follow some of these guidelines. And the things that we're, that we're talking about, acute disease, chronic disease, autoimmune disease, uh, will definitely improve with some uh, simple interventions. And by listening to uh, you know many of the shows that you, you're doing and the, 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 uh, the speakers that you will have on, uh, your listeners will indeed gain a lot of valuable knowledge about things that they can be doing for themselves uh, to help themselves. Yeah, absolutely. My goal with the show is really just to bring to people these amazing um, doctors that I've been exposed to, just letting them know that it's out there and there are physicians like yourself who are treating, um, you know, very chronic diseases with natural medicine effectively. It's safe, you know, done safely. And um, and so that's just my goal is just bringing these amazing people to the, to people or to the public so they can know what options they have when it comes to their health. So um yeah, I just I'm all about just being an advocate for patients and letting them know, letting them know the options that they have. Cuz really it's just knowledge is power. The more that people know, the more power they have in making a choice. Absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it and um I look forward to having you on again in the future. My pleasure. Um uh, It's always a pleasure to talk uh, to yourself and then to your listeners. Absolutely. Have a great night. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. It was a great show. Really loved having one of my uh, mentors on the show. It's an honor to have him. He's very knowledgeable. And I do have to say, I saw patients in his practice get get better left and right from very serious diseases. So, um, you know, if you have some of these chronic um, conditions that we've talked about, don't underestimate the power of natural medicine. You know, some of the most simple things can be so powerful. Like we said, diet, breathing exercises, moving your body, drink drink clean clean water, um, making sure you're getting adequate sleep, like we mentioned with sleeping, and melatonin is just so important for your immune function. So making sure you're getting sleep with, you know, complete darkness. Just some of the most basic things can make the biggest difference. And even if you are on a lot of medication and you, you know, don't know where to start right now, start with the most basic things. Find a naturopathic doctor in your area that can work with you on addressing these, you know, various issues you're dealing with. Check out the website, naturopathic.org. That's N-A-T-U-R-O. P-A-T-H-I-C dot org. It's naturopathic.org. That is the um, the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians website. You can put in your information in there, find an ND in your area. That's a doctor who has gone to um, naturopathic medical school. They've taken their boards. They are um, licensed doctors, and they can help you through these different um, you know health concerns that you have. Um, so I just really encourage you to take responsibility for your health, listen to your body, um, and just see what other options you have out there because there are a lot of them. So I highly encourage you to do that. Next week's show is going to be great. Um, Dr. Lynn Patrick will be talking about the liver, how to uh, really optimize your liver's ability to clear out toxins, just learning what the liver does. You know, we hear about liver cleanses and stuff, but really how effective are they? And once um, different liver conditions are, um, you know, already established, what can naturopathic medicine do for that? So that will be a great show. The following week, Dr. Lise Alshuler, she'll be on talking about natural um, cancer care. So that will also be an awesome show. So check it out. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will uh, check you next week. Thanks. Bye. 
North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.